Uh, show of hands. We're, this is the crowd participation portion. Uh, show of hands. How many people in the room? Ha raise your hand if you have heard about what is going on in the nation of Egypt right now. Okay. Now, by that, that was like two thirds. That's pretty good. How many of you know that in the nation of Egypt there has been a military coup? Raise your hand again. Military coup? Okay, that's about the same number of people. How many of you know that there are protests going on in the street? Okay, how many of you know that there are Christians who are being killed and churches burned? Raise your hands. Okay, that's about the same number, but it dwindled each time. Um, I think as a Christian, we should be aware of current events. I don't think we should live by them. I don't think our hope should rise and fall with the uh, shakings, if you will. If you will. Uh, a lot of people who believe in premillennial theology, that is, the church will uh, go through a great tribulation before Christ returns, and then um, after Christ returns, there will be a literal thousand-year reign of peace and, and, and glory on the earth. And then after that, the, uh, the final consummation of all things will take place. I don't believe in that particular interpretation of what the Bible says about the end of the age. But if you do, sometimes uh, you tend to interpret Jesus' words, talking about shakings, wars, rumors of wars. You uh, interpret when those things happen in cultural events or current events as signs of the times. And, and you interpret them to mean that the Lord is near. Now, I don't uh, think that's accurate. I believe that uh, God is faithful and that his plan of redemption is succeeding and will succeed. Uh, Jesus said the, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but when it's grown up, when it's matured, it has become the largest of all the plants in the garden and is, is like a tree, which the birds of the air can come and nest in. And the birds of the air is a prophetic picture in the prophets of the nations of the earth. And so the kingdom of God is a thing on the earth. It's a force on the earth. It's a place uh, in the spiritual realm where nations all across the earth will take rest in the kingdom of God. So I don't, you know, if whatever your eschatological opinion about the end of the age uh, becomes, whatever you land on, it has to, you have to reconcile Jesus's opinions of, of what the kingdom of God is. Um, that being said, I wanted to just read uh, portions of an article uh, that I found this week, and I thought, you know, I wasn't going to do this, and then the Lord just kind of overruled me. Uh, I, I had thought about doing this, and then I decided, you know, it's not that important, or rather it's, you know, I could just send out an email. But then through a few events last night, it was just confirmed to me multiple times that I should uh, share this. So I'm going to read a, a little bit about what is specifically happening. For those of you who are not aware, um, our brothers and sisters in Egypt are having a very difficult time. And uh, this is an article from uh, uh, a newspaper called The Daily Beast. Now, uh, it's not about... <laughs> now, just to be sure, th that newspaper is not a religious newspaper. It's not even, you know, it doesn't have any eschatological opinion. Uh, it's a... It's an article from Newsweek, and I think what they're, the name of the newspaper is, it's talking about either the government or the uh, just, you know, the, the rat race, as in, you know, it, you, 
there's just all this stuff that comes at us. And so this is like the daily rag. Um, <clears throat> so uh, this is an article by Kristen Powers. The title is uh, The Muslim Brotherhood's War on Coptic Christians. Uh, the subtitle, Brutal Murders, Looting, and Burning, Facebook Rumors, Egypt's Islamicist Party is Leading a Campaign of Deadly Lies Against the Country's Christian Minority as the World Watches. Uh, Chris, uh, Kirsten, not Kirsten, Kirsten Powers. The Muslim Brotherhood is showing the world its true colors. The group that renounced violence in an effort to gain political power is engaged in a full-scale campaign of terror against Egypt's Christian minority. Brotherhood leaders have incited their followers to attack Christian homes, shops, schools, and churches throughout the country. Samuel Tadros, an Egyptian scholar with the Hudson Institute, told me these attacks are the worst violence against the Coptic church since the 14th century. The news coming out of Egypt is staggering. USA Today reports that 40 churches have been looted and torched, while 23 others have been attacked and heavily damaged in one week. So I want you to get your mind around that, okay? This building is uh, probably the cheapest church building that I can imagine. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't say that to badmouth this building. It's just, if you look at the walls, they're panel, they're wood, and uh, they're plastic stained glass. Okay, that is, uh, I long for the day when the Lord will grace us with, with non-offensive stained glass. Uh, I, just to understand what uh, the, who these Christians are, if you've ever uh, heard about the Orthodox Christians, the Coptic Christians and the Orthodox are very similar in their type of building, theology, various things like this. Okay, So when, when they say that their churches have been looted and burned, they're not talking about a tiny little church that can fit, you know, like 40 people. Uh, and it's not made out of wood. It's made out of stone and gold and precious metals and things like this. They, they have, you know, millions of dollars worth of uh, religious art, artistry that they, that they uh, consider to be part of their religion, part of their faith. They worship through that art. And so whether you believe you can worship through art or not, it still remains. Forty churches uh, have been looted and torched. So what happens when a church is torched is somebody comes in and throws petrol bombs on the walls and the floor, and everything is burnt up. The ceiling caves in. The entire church is destroyed. You have to level the building and start again. According to the Coptic Orthodox, that, that's the Coptic Christians, and the Catholic churches in Egypt, so both the Coptics and the Catholics are being attacked, uh, 160 <clears throat> Christian-owned buildings have also been attacked. So those are churches. Uh, earlier we talked about 63 churches and 160 non-church but buildings. So schools, monasteries, prayer houses, uh, administrative offices, homes, etc. 160 have been attacked. In one town, Islamists paraded three nuns on the street like prisoners of war after burning their Franciscan school. The attackers tore a cross off the gate of the school and replaced it with an Islamicist flag. The New York Times described hundreds of Islamicists in one attack inside a church, lashing out so ferociously that the marble altars were left in broken heaps on the floor. Um, so the Islamicists are, are literally going into the churches and desecrating the place where the Christians are meeting. Now, I mean, you, you got to realize the symbolic 
importance for the Catholics, their entire worship service is focused around communion, as ours is as well. But they have a little bit of a different focus. It's more, it's somehow a larger centerpiece to their to their life as a worshiping community. And they have these altars where the the worship takes place. And what the New York Times is saying is that a hundred or so Islamicists, that is Muslims who believe in the destruction of other religions, other people, have come into the church, they invaded into the church, and they pulled the altar up and smashed it on the floor repeatedly until it was broken into pieces. Two security guards working on a tour boat owned by Christians were burned alive. An orphanage was burned down. The Catholic Bishop of Luxor told the Vatican News Agency Tuesday that he has been trapped in his home for 20 days by Islamicist mobs chanting death to the Christians, people who reside in the villages of the area that have nothing because food supplies are running out and people are afraid to leave the house, he said. So the Catholic bishop has been reporting that he's under house arrest, basically, and there's mobs at the gates of their uh, compound. This is probably the the saddest portion uh, that I think is in this article. For the first time in 1600 years, prayers were not held in the Virgin Mary and priest Ibrahim Monastery. Now, whether or not you believe uh, the way the Catholics believe about the Virgin Mary or about communion or about whatever, what is happening in Egypt right now is all-out warfare by Satan against the church, and he is uh, attempting to wipe out the Coptic minority of that nation. Now, they haven't begun murdering as much as they are just destroying buildings because part of Islamic uh, fundamentalism is the destruction of sacred places of worship and the eventual conversion of those previous religious adherents. That is, they don't want to necessarily kill the Christians right away until they give them you know, the command to turn to Islam and then uh, they'll be killed. Uh, nevertheless, people are being killed. It's not, um, it's not like a Rwandan genocide level yet, but it is extremely, uh, extremely sad, extremely terrible what is happening to our Christian brothers and sisters. And so I wanted to tell us these things because many of us had heard of Egypt, the military coup that's gone on, and the demonstrations that are taking place in the streets. But what's not being covered is this kind of stuff. I have only seen one or two news agencies even mention that the Christians are being attacked. On one village street, Islamicists painted a red X on Muslim stores and a black X on Christian stores so that the attackers knew where to focus their rage. On Tuesday, there were reports that the Brotherhood declared Friday prayers to be held in an evangelical church in the town of Minya that has been converted to a mosque. So what they have literally done is they've taken over uh, a church like this, an evangelical church, and because the, the Muslims can't worship in a place with religious uh, imagery, um, they have their own opinions about that. Uh, they took over this uh, evangelical building and have actually turned it into a mosque and have set up their, their prayers to take place in there. Um, the waves of attacks followed between the military and Morrissey supporters left more than 800 dead. So many people are, are being killed, both Muslim and Christian. Uh, but what did the Christians have to do with that? Absolutely nothing. 
The leader of the military, like nearly every other top government official in Egypt, is a devout Muslim. Yet in the town of Al-Nazla, a local mosque broadcast through its loudspeakers the lie that it was the Christians who were attacking the protesters. Hundreds of villagers stormed the local church, shouting, Alu Akbar and Islam is the solution. Um, even before the mass church bombings and firings, 16 Egyptian human rights organizations issued a statement saying that they, were str that they strongly condemn rhetoric employed by the leaders of the Muslim Brotherhood and their allies, which includes clear incitement to violence and religious hatred in order to achieve political gains. And so um, I thought it important for us to uh, remember the Coptic brothers and sisters that are dying right now in Egypt and to ask the Lord to uh, give them mercy and strength in the midst of their sufferings. And I, I also think that we as a church, uh, hopefully by the end of this message, we'll, we'll actually pray for a few minutes. But I think that it would, it would be uh, a good thing for us to pray throughout the next few weeks uh, until this relents. And, and to ready ourselves for this type of thing to take place within our lifetime. I believe very strongly that things in this culture, I, I'm not a doom and gloom scenario kind of guy, but uh, just last week the Supreme Court decided that it was illegal for a private business owner who refused to take photographs of, a, uh, of two uh, homosexual men getting married. She, she, her business was a photography uh, company and she rejected uh, serving those clients. She she didn't want to want to take pictures at their wedding. And the Supreme Court, uh, a federal judge rather, not the Supreme Court, a federal judge had uh, reversed the the lower court's decision and said that it was a violation of uh, human equality, civil rights, the constitutional rights guaranteed to each individual for her to reject service. Now she wasn't a church. She was just a private person, and the government said that she had had illegally uh, denied someone service based on their sexual orientation. And so we're going to see this more and more. If 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 you can compel a person, an individual, to take photos of a of a, a homosexual marriage, you can certainly make the case that that is that is legal grounds for compelling a minister to allow homosexuals to be married in, in a particular church. We're talking about private entities, not even churches. And so uh, if we are to stay true to the scriptures and to reject the wave of immorality that's coming through our culture, we must be ready for the type of persecution that will surely come. And brothers and sisters, persecution is not a light thing. I haven't experienced it totally. I've only experienced social scorn. But it is coming, and I think that we should be ready for it. I don't think that we should just kind of look at the way our culture is going and just kind of sit by and be unprepared. I, I don't think that helps. I don't think the ostrich defense is going to, to help us at all. Now, do I think this is coming tomorrow? No, but I think that we need to develop a theology that is a basis in our faith to be ready for the floods that may come. That's what I think uh, we should learn from from this uh, current event that's taking place in, in the nation of Egypt at the same time as praying for our, and, and mourning for our brothers and sisters. Uh, nevertheless, 
what will happen in Egypt, what's happening in Egypt will be for the benefit of the church there, although much suffering is taking place. And that's why I chose this passage today uh, to talk about this. With all of that in mind uh, as the basis, we're going to just speed through some elements in Philippians 1. The six uh, things that I want to talk about is Paul's thanksgiving, his confidence for the work of the ministry that's taking place in Philipp- in the in the midst of the Philippians, his desire for the purity of walk to be exemplified there, uh, his opinion about the fact that the gospel will advance even though sufferings are happening, his hope for the future for them, and finally his uh, in his command to be completely free from fear. And so Paul thanks God for these believers at the beginning of the chapter. The context for this chapter is that Paul has been imprisoned, and the Philippians sent one of their uh, elders to go and see Paul and to bring him a gift. And uh, that gift was going to sustain Paul while he was in house arrest in Rome. And so Paul sends back a letter, and he thanks them, and he says that I have been praying for you and thanking God for you. And he says, not only have they been, uh, not only have they received the gospel, but the Philippians themselves have been partakers in the gospel. Now, this is kind of a weird idea. Paul is the missionary that goes to the Philippian church and founds it, and he is the one who uh, shares the gospel. But then, he, when in his letter to them, he says that they have become partakers. In, that is, co-laborers in the work that he's been doing. Now, this that may sound weird, but uh, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's not just saying that they've become partakers because they sent a, a monetary gift to sustain Paul while he's under house arrest. He says that they were partakers in the work of the gospel since the very beginning. And he says, by believing and trusting upon Christ, the Philippians have entered into that same work. Because they share the same source of grace that Paul has, they become very dear to him, and he remembers them in his prayers week by week. And so because of this, Paul says there's a relationship, there's a connectedness that takes place between this missionary and the church, the, the, the group of Christians that he's, uh, that he's founded. And so this basis of relationship forms the foundation for the rest of this chapter. Paul is confident that God will continue to work in these believers because they share in the grace. This is not a a baseless claim. Paul's confidence that the Philippians are going to be brought into maturity, even in the midst of their own persecution, that is the basis of that is that they share the common source of grace. Paul's not an apostle without Christ. Paul is an apostle of Christ and under Christ. And because Paul is in Christ and because the Philippians are in Christ, Paul's logic is basically this. Because I'm in Christ and I know you're in Christ, I'm confident that what he's done for me, he's going to do for you. He says this is the opposite of fear, a lack of assurance, fretting, and worrying. Um, Paul is, is a confident, he, he's confident in the fact that Christ will bring about maturity in in the midst of the Philippians, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I love scripture memory, but one of the one of the problems with scripture memory is ripping verses out of context. If you don't remember the context, you know, we, we often quote about Philippians 1, 6 as a personal promise. 
I, you know, I'm confident that he who began a good work in me will see it about. But Paul's writing this letter to the church. This is a verse about maturity for the church, not just individuals. And so he explains the reason. In verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. So Paul says, it's, I'm, this isn't a baseless claim of confidence. It's right for me to feel this way because I remember you in my heart. That is, I have some spiritual uh, affection for you. That is, Paul, Paul loves these Philippians. And not only do I love the Philippians, it's also right for me to feel this way because they're partakers in the same grace. And that grace is the source of Paul's confidence. He's not relying upon his own missionary success or apostolic effectiveness. He's saying that this is, I'm confident because you're partakers in the same grace that I have. So how does this work? Paul basically reasons that throughout his own life, Time and time again, he has seen God break in at moments of of peril, moments of weakness, moments where Paul could no longer continue the ministry in his own accord. His resources had run out. He was personally burned out. He was shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, etc. But Paul has seen God time and again break into the situation and restore, rebuild, renew, invigorate. And so Paul's reasoning is this, because I follow Christ, because I'm in Christ, and you are also in Christ, I'm confident that he's going to bring you to maturity. Paul has seen the testimony of God in his life, and he's confident it will be the testimony of the Philippians. So Paul, in this manner, because he knows that their destination is maturity, tells them this. He doesn't leave them ignorant. He says, I desire that the Philippians would abound in love and grow in the faith. And his prayer is that their relationships would exhibit forgiveness and charity, meekness and honor. Now, when the reason I say forgiveness and charity, meekness and honor, when we talk about love, uh, it just becomes this kind of uh, marshmallowy idea that, you know, I love you and you love me. Uh, what did Larry say earlier? I am you and you are me and we are all together. You know, I mean, that's the that's the theology of the Beatles, right? And transcendental meditation and all of the weird stuff that took place uh, back in those days. But but love in in the church is not just acceptance of you, acceptance of me. We can both hate each other, but we're okay. We we shake hands at church, etc. Love is getting past the problems. That exists. Love is working out difficulties. Love is forgiveness over time in relationship. You can't love someone. I said this last week. You don't walk up to a stranger and tell and declare, "I love you." Uh, I mean, obviously, we love all people, but you don't you don't declare to someone that you don't have relationship with, "I love you." How can you say that? How do you know that to be true? What's the proof of your love? Paul's saying, "I want you to live in love." He says, it's my prayer that your love, the church's love, may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, and that you would approve what is excellent. What does it mean to approve what is excellent? Paul is saying that I desire for the lifestyle of the Philippians, their their confidence in God, their satisfaction in Christ, that their walk would approve the things that are excellent. Well, what does that mean? It It means that their lifestyle decisions... What the Philippians choose to do with their time, money, resources, etc., 
personal energy, economic power, etc., that those lifestyle decisions would demonstrate, they would be a testimony of the sufficiency of Christ. That's what it means to approve of the things that are excellent. He says that the Philippians, his desire is that their wisdom and discernment that God will give them will inform their way of life so that they'll have a steady, faithful, dependable walk, and that in that walk, they will serve as a living testimony in their culture to the satisfaction that comes from faith in God. And so Paul is in the midst of this turmoil, and this is kind of like the preamble to the letter. He's saying, I want your love to abound. I want you to demonstrate and and prove the things that are excellent. And I pray and I'm confident that God will bring about maturity in in the church in Philippi. But he says he, that uh, I don't want them, he, the reason this letter is being written is he doesn't want them to be unnecessarily concerned. And moreover than that, he doesn't want them to become pessimistic nor to believe the lie of the devil about the outcome of Paul's imprisonment. When you think about it, we, were, we talked about this the other day when we were talking about going away and resting with the Lord, that the disciples at that time had just found out that John the Baptist had been killed. And we imagined what it would be like to hear that one of our spiritual fathers had been killed or martyred. It's the same idea here. The, these Philippians are concerned because their apostle has been taken out of the game. He's now locked up in, in prison, and and they're very there's there's a very strong likelihood that these philippians would become despondent that they would de- become depressed that they would despair concerning what's happening to paul and so paul says don't believe the lie of the enemy believe the truth of god he wants them to believe the truth and he says i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel he says even though it may look like from outward expectations, out, out, outward visions of this situation, even though it may look that Paul has been taken out of the game because of the effectiveness of Christ, the glory that shines forth from Paul's life, he's now told the entire prison guard about Christ. And not only that, in the midst of him going to Rome, he's even gone into Caesar's palace. And uh, that's not the place in Vegas. He's gone into Caesar's palace and he's shared the gospel. If you've ever seen Rain Man, Caesar's Palace is beautiful, but it's got nothing on what Paul did in that, in that place. Paul absolutely demonstrates the sufficiency of Christ. And he says, in the midst of my imprisonment, I've not shrunk back from sharing the gospel, and I've even continued. And not only has the entire uh, imperial guard heard that I'm being imprisoned for Christ, but also that, that some of the, the royal family, that is Caesar's people, have heard. His court has heard about Paul and, and Paul's faith in Christ. Now, what Paul is saying is, I am a living testimony. This entire first chapter of Philippians is all about living testimonies. Paul's saying, I'm a living testimony in the midst of my jailings that Christ is glorious because I've not lost heart and I'm still full of faith and I haven't renounced God and I haven't turned away against the faith and I, I haven't scorned Christ, I haven't renounced Christ, but yet I'm in prison and in the midst of being in prison, I'm demonstrating that Christ is excellent. How is he doing that? He's being sat- he's satisfied with who God is to him. He's satisfied with his relationship with Christ. 
Not only that, in verse 14, he says, and most of the brothers have become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is an, an amazing effect that the Holy Spirit does when persecution comes on the church. The confidence that these other brothers of Paul have now because they see Paul. Now, it's, it's kind of like this. Uh, leaders lead and people follow, right? Uh, leaders in the, in the church do not lord it over their uh, sheep. That is, the elders, observers, uh, overseers, they don't rule over churches with an iron fist. But they also, in the spirit, prophetically, apostles go and take new ground. And what's happening, Paul says, is I've gone into this place of persecution. All the rest of my brothers had heard about these things, but they didn't know what would happen to us. And Paul, as an apostle, has gone before all of them and is now demonstrating the sufficiency of Christ in the midst of imprisonment. And so these other brothers are coming to realize, hey, the water's not so bad. Uh, you know, Paul is full of faith in the midst of his persecution. We should be even more bold. If Paul, the guy who got us started in the faith, is, is able to get through this, these winds and the waves of, of the tumultuous time around him, we too have faith that God will cause us to stand firm when the shakings come. And so Paul is not just, it's not just blind optimism. This isn't just my glass is half full rather than, you know, my glass is half empty. Uh, it's, it's not just Paul's impression about what's going on. It's not just his faith. It's the actual substance of what's taking place. He's saying people are hearing about the gospel in Caesar's courts. People are uh, around me, brothers and sisters who are Christians around me, they're more confident to speak the word in boldness. And so likewise, Paul says, what's happened to me and the rest of the elders and, and brothers who are with me is going to take place in Philippi, because Paul knows that they're in the midst of a persecution and it's going to get worse. So Paul tells the Philippians, I'm confident that I'm going to be released from prison and that I will eventually be able to see you again. And then he says, but even if that doesn't happen, uh, I'm confident that God will be glorified. Christ will be glorified in my body, whether I live or I die. That somehow through Paul's body, his physical body, whether it's the outward actions that he takes as an apostle or whether it's the faithful, authentic witness of martyrdom, he's, he's confident that Christ is going to be glorified. <clears throat> he says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He goes on to say in the next verse, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. He says, I'm confident that God will deliver me, but even if he doesn't, I will stand true to the day I die. Now, this is unlike Peter's confidence. You remember Peter's confidence before Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus says to the disciples, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And Peter says, Lord, you know, never let this be. At another point, Peter says, I'm not going to run away from you. I'm not going to deny you. I'm not going to reject you. I will die even if, you know, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus, even if it takes me dying. And Jesus basically says to Peter, I've prayed for you, Peter. Satan's been given permission to sift you. But when, you're, when you've fallen and recover, strengthen your brothers. 
This is a different side of the cross. Paul is confident. There's, there's something in the spirit that Paul understands that the prayers of the saints are going to result in his deliverance from prison. And he's confident that, that he'll be delivered. And even if he's wrong, Christ will be honored. He, this isn't a turncoat kind of uh, operation. He's not just going to flip over and deny Christ. This is something that Paul is confident. Christ will be honored in my body whether I live or die. And so Paul's perspective on the situation is no matter what the outcome is, Christ will be glorified. And so these Philippians are, are facing trials already, and they are going to face more, and Paul knows this. And so he's trying to, just like an apostle goes before the church, he's trying to lead them into faithfulness and steadfastness of, of walk before they face it. It's kind of like... Um, to, to, to make a quick illustration, uh, many of you remember 2005 Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Uh, there are these things called levees. If you don't know what a levee is, go downtown. Have Jordan take you to Riverscape. He loves Riverscape. Ha have him take you, and uh, he'll show you what the levees are. Levees are these huge pieces of dirt uh, that become hills. They're man-made hills that flank the sides of, of rivers and where rivers join and separate. And we have a system of levees in Dayton, Ohio, because there was a great flood back in 1913 where, you know, thousands and thousands of homes were destroyed, etc. When a flood comes in, it is too late to build a levee. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to say this morning. Through the example of, of praying for our, our brothers and sisters in Egypt, if you are just now at the standpoint where you don't know whether or not Christ is more precious to live, you know, to live with, with him and, and die by the hands of man or to renounce Christ and be spared for your life, uh, whether, you, you know, if you don't know what side of that uh, equation you're going to land on, today is the day to start preparing for it. It's not enough to try to attempt to gain a theology of suffering in the midst of your trials. It's just not. Paul is, is giving advance warning to the Philippians, and he, he wants them to know that sufficiency of Christ is way better than, than the world and or life without him. So that's what I'm trying to say. You can't build a, a levee in the midst of the rain. It just doesn't work. And in Hurricane Katrina, all of their levees eventually broke. Had they fortified them the year before, uh, we probably wouldn't have been consumed with news coverage of the disaster that took place in that city. Although it was a terrible storm either way, had the levees not had broken, many, many more homes would have been spared and that city wouldn't have been wiped out. I was just talking on Friday night to a man from who used to pastor two hours north of of uh, New Orleans, and I asked him what's what's going on down there. Is there a recovery? And he said there's basically there was a recovery, but entire neighborhoods are completely gone, and that they won't be resettled until you know a, a population goes down there, and and in, entire sections of land are just without homes. They were totally wiped out, and so I don't want to see that happen in in your life as as a follower of Christ. I don't want to see you unprepared for the storm that may come. So uh, Paul says to these Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come to see you or, an ab or am absent, that is 
in prison or die. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now that idea of being one spirit, he's talking about, I want you church at Philippi to be of one mind, that is one purpose, that you would be unified in your mission, unified in the life of the church, unified in the way that you disciple one another. I don't want you to be divided. And then here is the payoff verse, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That is the salvation that's coming to the Philippians is going to come about at God's hand. Now, again, I said earlier that this entire chapter is a book, it's a chapter about living testimonies. Paul is a living testimony in the midst of his imprisonment. Likewise, he says these Philippians, if they don't become afraid in the midst of their persecution, they will serve as a prophetic witness. He says they will be a prophetic sign to the rest of the church, testifying to God's deliverance. And not only will they be a prophetic sign to the rest of the church of God's deliverance, they will also be a prophetic sign, a bad omen, if you will, against the evil ones who are attempting to destroy the church. And so this is what Paul's desire is for the Philippians, that they would be free from fear, confident, and totally satisfied by Christ. So with that, I want to take just about three to four minutes, and I want, uh, I'm going to pray, and then if you feel led, I want you to pray for the the brothers and sisters in Egypt who are being persecuted. And um, not only that, uh, then we're going to we're going to close the prayer time and then take communion.